It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I'm speaking today with Larry Jordan, who is a director, editor, teacher, and executive producer at LarryJordan.com, and someone that I have known for many years. Larry, you and I first met in 2004 when I took my first Final Cut Pro. Well, it wasn't even Final (laughs) Cut Pro then. It was Final Cut when I took my first Final Cut class, and it was so much fun, and you put me on the right path. And then, wow, how many years did we work together on the digital production buzz? Well, we met first in 2004 at Mac Mall. It was a store in Santa Monica (laughs) where I was teaching Final Cut. And then you and I started working together on Digital Production Buzz, which is an audio podcast similar to OWC Radio. In November of 2007, because I looked it up, and we worked together for close to 15 years. You were an amazing producer. It was fun to work with you. Oh, thank you. But I tell you, I really miss you. I thought we made a really good team. (laughs) I thought we did. We made a really good team. You're so good at the engineering side and just managing everything, and you're so good at hosting. And I learned a lot working with you, and I want to thank you for that because I think these. Oh, thank you. From you, that's high praise. I'm very (laughs) grateful. Well, you are beloved all over the world for your classes, and I want to talk to you today primarily about this wonderful new book that you wrote, and it's called Techniques of Visual Persuasion, Create Powerful Images that Motivate, and I bought the book, and I've just now started reading it, so I just want to admit to everybody, I haven't gone through the whole thing. I've thumbed through it, though, and I guess I'm impatient because it just looks so wonderful, and I've read pages here and there, but... You talk about the goals for the book. Why did you write this book to begin with, and who did you write it for? I wrote it for people who would never consider themselves being artists. I wrote it for engineers, and I wrote it for business people. I wrote it for CEOs who have to manage creative staffs without understanding what creativity actually is. If you think about it, in today's world, nobody reads We're all looking at pictures. We're sharing memes. Even acronyms have acronyms. For some reason, we're all suffering from ADD, and the fastest way to communicate a rich amount of information is with an image. Now, as you know, because you've been doing films for a long time, look at the amount of time that you spend thinking and crafting and lighting and composing any image that you put in your film. And there's a wealth of information in your brain that you put into every one of the the images that you create and the stories that you tell. And we look at commercials. Commercials are the same way, not just stories, but commercials or advertising or images in magazines or on the web. We're surrounded by images that are all trying to convince us to do something. The reason for this book is to help people who will never be filmmakers, who will never be graphics designers, to be able to improve the quality of their communication by improving the quality of their pictures. And especially today, in today's world where fake news is a story in and of itself and images are manipulated with wild abandon, it's a useful defensive technique for us to understand what these manipulations are and and for us to be able to figure out, ah, look how they're playing with my emotion. 
this book is designed to help people communicate better and understand when they're being communicated to in a manipulative way and to enable all of us to become more visually literate. You know, you talk about the fact that what's really important is relationships. And you talk about that in the book and you talk about that in life when we've moved through these various projects together. You've always talked about the importance of relationships. How difficult is it really to build a relationship when you're using Zoom or something like that? I think all relationships ultimately are built on some level of trust. At some point, you have to be able to trust the other person in the relationship. And that trust can be built remotely. It can be built face-to-face. It can be built when all you do is hear their voice or when all you're doing is able to wave with no audio. Trust can be built in a number of ways, but relationships basically have to be on some sort of, I understand where they're coming from, I understand who they are, I trust them, or I don't trust them, but I don't trust them in ways that I can trust. In other words, they always exaggerate. Well, I can deal with always exaggerating because I can understand where they're coming from. And relationships can be built digitally as well as face-to-face, as we've seen with Zoom. You talk about four fundamental themes in your book. You talk about persuasion as a choice that we make. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that was one of the most eye-opening quotes that I came across in my research. Kevin Eikenberry, who is a guru that teaches marketing and and self-worth, has a great quote. He says, persuasion in the end is about the other person making a decision. Persuasion isn't, at least as we're talking about it, about power or coercion or force. It's about understanding, exploration, stimulation, and ultimately choice. And this just exploded my mind when I read it. And it was one of the driving themes throughout the entire book. I can't force you to do something. I mean, maybe I can short term, but long term, as soon as that force, that pressure that I provide is lifted, you aren't going to follow that same path. But if I can show you why you want to make this decision, why you want to change this buying habit, why you want to change your opinion, if I can show you the reason and get you to buy into the reasons, you say, hey, that makes sense. I'm going to do that because it makes sense, because Larry has a good case, and I believe him. As soon as you make that decision for yourself, rather than having that decision forced on you, you've made a permanent change. If you make a decision simply because I say, do it this way because I'm the boss, you know, you may do it that way because you want a paycheck, but you're not going to like it. But as soon as I say, here's why, and you buy into the choice, then that change becomes permanent. And what many of us want to do as we are persuading people to buy products or clean up the planet or burn less gas or vote a particular way is we want that choice to become permanent. So they become a part of our extended team. I don't have to worry about them anymore because we're all on the same side. I don't want to keep forcing you to do something. I don't have that much energy. I want to explain to you why this is important in ways that you understand, have you buy into the choice. And that way, you're self-motivating to be in the direction I want you to go. That's really smart, Larry. Do you think that every conversation then becomes almost a sort of a subliminal negotiation between you and the other person? No, it doesn't no? become a negotiation, it becomes a conversation. For instance, you and I were discussing uh, technical stuff before you started recording the interview, and you were talking about some of the challenges that you have in putting a podcast together, which all of us face, because podcasts are part content, part technology, and part magic. 
And if the technology breaks, you're looking for something that would make more sense. Well, you and I were talking, having a conversation about possible solutions to a technological problem. I wasn't forcing it to do anything. I was saying, here's your choices. Here's why you might want to consider this choice. And here's the choice I recommend. Well, that's a conversation, but it's a conversation with a persuasive back end. And if I were selling products, then I would do the same thing. I'd still have a conversation, but I would lead you toward the product that I'm selling not selling products right now, but the process is the same. So what I want to do is I want to persuade you. I want to convince you to a particular point of view, but I'm not going to do it by bludgeoning you over the head. Same way you don't want to do an image. An image is more than just simply a picture. Virtually any good image has got a story behind it, and that story can lead the viewer to a particular decision. Or at the very least, where the images work the best, is attracting the attention of the viewer long enough for them to read the message. I may not be able to tell the entire story in a single photograph, but if I'm lucky, I can find an image, whether it's a photograph or a manipulated image or a composite or a video or even a business presentation like PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. I can put together something that stops you in your tracks long enough be able to read the rest of the message and say, hey, that's kind of cool. I want to learn more. Or, hey, that's kind of cool. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to go. Or I'm going to learn. That's really what we're doing is we're using visual images as a way of flagging the attention of an audience that is so distracted and so bubble-wrapped inside themselves. They're trying to break through that barrier of all the things that we're obsessing about today because we're so individualistic, trying to penetrate that bubble long enough to get your attention and say, hey, this is a cool idea. You need to pay attention to this. The only thing strong enough to break that bubble is an image. And that's why it's so important, especially when we're isolated like we are. We don't have the physical touch of somebody walk over and, and touching our arm to say, hey, I've got something for you. Or a large emotional event where lots of people are all in the same room at the same time sharing energy like a theater production or a speech. Those are just not possible today. The only way we're able to communicate is remotely. And the best way to break that isolationist bubble that surrounds all of us is an image. And that's what we're talking about in this book is what does the average non-artist need to know to create images that can break through that bubble and reach someone else? Right. And you talk about how you can manipulate emotional content through the camera placement and framing. Can you think of any tips that you might want to give people that they're going to get when they read the book? But is there anything you can tell them now off the top of your head about (laughs) things they should do? Uh, My wife has a great comment. We've been married for a long time. But when we were first married, I was deeply involved in directing, producing and directing live television. And I would come home at night and I'd watch TV, and I would just critique everything that I saw. <laughs> and and she said, after about six months of marriage, she said, you know, you have completely ruined watching television for me. Because now she looks at the lighting, and now she listens to the audio, where before she was just captivated by the story. My book has got a downside in that it will change the way you watch television. So I'll just give you two examples. Let's say that you have a person kneeling on the floor, and if the camera is down at eye level with them on the floor, you're watching them watch a spider crawl across a linoleum floor. But if that camera is up about 10 feet shooting down at them, 
we're not with them anymore. We're looking down at them. We have diminished them. We have minimized them. We have made them depressed and isolated. And all they did is change the angle of the camera. If I have that person sit on the edge of a table in a casual pose or sit on a chair, and the camera's eye to eye with them, we're peers. Even if it's Tim Cook, the head of Apple, or some rich sports athlete talking about what they did. If I'm eye to eye with somebody, we're peers and we're the same. But if I move that camera down about six inches and shoot up at them, they become heroic. They become more than we could ever assume. They become vast in power and lordly in demeanor simply because I changed the angle of the camera. If you look at every commercial, you look at every political commercial, you look at every product commercial, it's such a famous angle. It's got its own name. It's called the hero shot. The camera is slightly lower than the product or the person and shooting up on it to make them look heroic. And it automatically lends them an aura of respectability and honor and power and glory. And you have to have this because if you have it, that power and glory comes to you. And I can hear you say, poof, poof, this is just nonsense, except it works. It does it, it work. It's always worked. It and does. it is a powerful, emotional, subliminal statement that doesn't involve fancy writing inside the image. It doesn't have the word sex in it anywhere. It isn't doing flashes. It's just the position of the camera that changes the emotional response. And you take the camera back, farther back, you get one emotional response. You pull the camera forward, you get another emotional response. All we're doing is moving the position of the camera. What's the camera, you ask? The camera is the point of view of the audience. What we're really doing when we reposition the camera is we're moving the audience into the position we want them to be to perceive an image. And the book goes through the first part of the book. The book is in three parts. The first part of the book covers what I call visual literacy, how you interpret, how your eye interprets the images that a camera creates. What does camera position do? What does talent blocking do? What does framing do? The second part looks at still images, everything from PowerPoint and keynote presentations to photography to editing a single layer image and to editing composites, the kind of thing you see in fancy advertising. The second talks about all the different techniques that we can use there to capture the eye of the audience and lead them in the direction we want them to go. Then the third section of the book talks about the moving image. And here we're talking audio, which doesn't sound like it's an image, except it's immensely powerful in and of itself. We talk about audio, we talk about shooting video, editing video, and creating motion graphics. And by the way, my experience in working with you and all the interviews that we've done together, which are over a thousand, inspired me to write a chapter on how to do interviews, how to be a good interview guest, and how to ask good interview questions, simply because so many people don't even begin to understand the kind of questions they need to ask. So we cover the gamut. It is the fundamentals, it's the still image, it's the moving image, all designed to capture the attention of an audience long enough to deliver a message. This is like a whole filmmaking school in one book. It's this is an, <laughs> How long did it take you to write this? I mean, this really is it's very comprehensive. Well, there's three answers to that. The first is it took me all my life. There because you go. I had to go through 
and learn a whole lot of stuff, not because I was writing the book, but because of what I did. I directed live television for the first third of my career, directed and produced for everything from local stations to the networks. Then the second part of of my career was doing marketing for software firms and learning technology. And the third part of my career is running my own company where I'm providing training and technical guidance and consulting and information to students of video production and post-production around the world. And along the way, I've taught at USC, not in the film school, but to engineers about how they can use visual communications to improve pitches for new products or to explain who they are to employers or talk about a new concept to an audience that doesn't understand engineering the way they do. And if I hadn't had those three phases, I wouldn't be able to write the book. There's so many books that talk about this is how to use Photoshop, another book. This is how to use Premiere or Final Cut or After Effects or Motion. And they go into hundreds and thousands of pages on how to use this one piece of software. What's missing is a book that talks about where these pieces of software fit in. And so this is a survey book for people that don't want to be a professional Photoshopper or a professional editor, but want to understand the questions that a professional creative person needs to deal with so they can better their own work or communicate better or talk to an audience. So I specifically designed this for people that don't use creative tools full time, but need to know how the creative tools work. I honestly think this book is also for professionals because a lot of professionals nowadays are professionals because they sort of opted into it or through the democratization of equipment, they started shooting or recording or writing. And now all of a sudden they're professional and they're working all the time, but they're missing the essence of persuasion the way you discuss it in this book. And some of them are instinctively very good at it, but they're not educated in it. And then we also have the problem, as you've mentioned to me before, of these uh, master classes being taught by people who really are still mastering it themselves. So I do think the book is great for people who don't intend to be or, or are not yet professional, but I do think that there's something in this book for everyone at every level. And I'm so glad you wrote it. Well, thank you. I will confess that it has come as a complete surprise to me that it has been so glowingly reviewed by people who are professionals in the industry. That wasn't the audience I had in mind when I wrote it. But people like yourself and Oliver Peters and Maxime Jago and people that have been doing infomercials for 30 years have all been bragging about how good the book is. And I'm, I'm honored and thrilled and blown away. It wasn't who I wrote it for, but I am so glad they like it because it simply validates that what I'm writing is ties in with what their experience is, and that's an important part of it to me. You've gotten right to the heart of what we all need right now, and that is more heart. You also talk about something that I think that everyone, when they're first starting out especially, need to know, who is my audience? How do I find my audience? What kind of advice are you giving in the book about that? (laughs) (laughs) The first exercise I give my USC students, they're going to spend a semester learning how to take pictures and and how to work with Photoshop and how to create video. It's essentially a semester course devoted to what the book talks about, but not quite in as much depth. Because this is a lot of work, I mean, creating pictures takes a lot of effort. I want them to work on something that they're interested in. So the very first lab assignment is your job is to pick a theme that you want to create 
an image for, a poster for, a video for, and a motion graphic for. You're going to be working on these. These are your big assignments for the semester. I want you to pick a theme. You have to pick two things. You have to pick a, a subject, and you have to pick an audience. And they have to write this up, and they come back with a one-page write-up of what they're going to talk about. And in all cases, the theme is too broad. I want to save the earth. I want to clean the oceans. <laughs> I want yeah. to promote my musical group. And the audience is, I want to reach everyone. And the problem is, is that you can't. Do you talk differently to a six-year-old than to a college student than to somebody your age? And the answer is, of course, yes. Do you talk differently to your friends than to people you haven't met? And the answer is, of course, yes. Do you talk differently to people in a position of power like your teachers than you do to your friends? The answer is, of course, yes. Well, then how can you have a single message that's going to reach all these different groups? The answer is you can't. How can you create an image that's going to appeal to a six-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 26-year-old, and a 60-year-old? And the answer is you can't. The only way that we can communicate is to focus our message on a specific subject. I don't want to just save the world. I want to reduce the amount of litter that's on the beach. Okay, reducing the litter on the beach, that's a subject that we can get our brains wrapped around. And I want to talk to college kids because students in college know college kids the best. Not saying they can't talk to older people, but let's make this easy. We want to get through the class, not die. So the kids are now focusing on a specific message to a specific audience, this becomes executable. To say, I want to sell more cars, well, which cars and to whom, is unexecutable. You're sitting there with a blank piece of paper in front of you, and you don't even know where to start because you've got no hooks to work with. You have no focus on the message. And everybody looks at him with a blank look when I explain this to them. They say, just how stupid is he? Because, <laughs> of course, we can talk about clean the earth. And they sit down, they start to create this, and the very first comment that comes back is, I can't do this. And then I laugh and say, why not? They said, it's not focused enough. That's part of the book. The part of the book is... We can create multiple messages. We can say clean the beach for a six-year-old and clean the beach for a teenager and clean the beach for an adult and clean the beach for a business owner and clean the beach for a nonprofit. I can have five different messages. I can have the same overall theme, different messages to different audiences. We talk about that in the book as well. The part that every college student hates is the first part of any communication project is to plan. What am I saying? Who am I saying it to? What do I want them to do? Where do I want them to go? And that's the heavy lifting. I saw a great cartoon a while back in a cartoon called Fraz, F-R-A-Z-Z, -Z, runs in the L.A. Times on Sunday. And one of the kids is sitting at a desk, and the screen is empty. Fraz is a janitor that the kids talk to, and then the kid's under the desk, then he's leaning over the desk, and then he has a deep sigh, and the janitor walks over and says, what's the problem? And the kid says, why is it the hardest part of writing is the part that looks like you're just goofing off? Coming up with the idea is the hardest part. Executing the idea is the fun part, but coming up with the idea, planning it, that's really difficult. And the kid's finally realize that after they start to create, don't realize what they're creating or they're heading in the wrong direction or looking at a blank screen. First, you plan. And the book talks about that. Then once you've got a plan, oh my goodness, there's all kinds of help I can give you in terms of execution, but you got to have the idea first. 
Speaking of writing, you have a whole section on persuasive writing, which I think I'm going to really enjoy reading it. You talk about what a story is and how to write it, how to support your images, and what makes a word powerful. What does make a word powerful? Fewer of them. Pick up one of the classics, something by Tolstoy or something by Dickens. Reread the first page of Tale of Two Cities, which is a classic book, or Brothers Karamazov, or any of the books that were written 100, 150 years ago. Authors then were paid by the word, and they got every penny they could get. Books are enormously wordy, and you've got to force yourself to sit there long enough to get into the book to be captivated by the story because they are so wordy. We're in an ADD world right now. Twitter at 140 characters is almost too much. It's like, give it to me in like three words. If you can't say it in three words, it's meaningless. People Mm -hmm. don't read white papers. They think they can grasp the complexity of a subject in a sentence, and they can't. But we're in an environment right now where less is absolutely more. If we're trying to get the attention of somebody, fewer words, and make those words work. That's what we talk about, is is what makes a word powerful, and, and how do we structure it? Not in terms of grammar, but how do you make sure that the text you're using is delivering the message that you want? And we look at video. I equate it to haiku. Writing today for visual is like writing haiku. You've got 17 syllables. What can you do in those 17 syllables? What can you do in the 50 words that we can squeeze into a 30-second radio commercial? Or what can you do in 75 words, which is all that fit inside a one-minute television commercial? You've got 75 words, and you're spending millions of dollars to put that in front of people. Every word has got a significant dollar value attached to it. Got to make sure those words are the best ones. My theory has always been when working with an editor or when editing myself, when in doubt, take it out. Simplify, simplify. And movies that have less dialogue are always more emotional for me because it allows me to take that journey myself with what the filmmaker has put together. Provided the filmmaker is doing a good job of telling the story visually. Absolutely. There's a big burden there. You're right. When you allow the actors to act and convey emotions by having us watch them, but that requires the director giving the actors the permission to do the acting. Many directors live for the words. They want to see the words on page, and they focus on the words, and they ignore the fact that the visuals are so important. You know, my current pet peeve, and I love documentaries, and I'm, I'm challenged with this, actually, on one I'm working on for myself right now, is these in documentaries, the talking heads. It seems like the filmmakers mm-hmm. go from one person to another person to another person to another person, and you're sitting there and you're watching talking heads, and I'm thinking, could I please have some situational B-roll? Could I please see the subtext of what they're saying visually? I don't want to just always watch somebody talking. And I think everything you're teaching in this book is going to help people avoid that, don't you think? Totally. There's a reason that you show somebody on screen talking if there's an emotional context with it. If they're simply explaining the problem, then let's set them up, let's see who they are, but then show me the problem or reenact the problem or give me a graphic of the problem. People like to see people, there's no question. But again, we're in an ADD environment where people want to see the next thing quickly. So get off the person talking and show what's going on. Show, tell me the story in pictures. 
You talk about the six priorities for images. The first one is movement. Well, let's back up a step. You should ask me what those six priorities are. Well, I was going to put you on the spot and have you have you list them all. <laughs> but go ahead. No, Absolutely. No, but there's a, there's a, they're out of context. We've okay. got to talk about context. Yeah. Context is important. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> okay, I'm done now. <laughs> no, so, I love it. I love this about you. Okay, so Larry, you talk about the six priorities in your book. What are they? I'm so glad you asked that question. When we look at a visual image, we don't see the entire image at one time. We actually dissect the image, looking first at one part of it, then at another part. I mean, we may look at the entire picture for a heartbeat and say, ah, there's a picture there. But then we start to look inside the picture to see what's there, to have the story unfold. Well, where does the eye look first? And where does it look second? And where does it look third? And the reason this is important is, let's say that I'm trying to hook somebody's attention. If I know where they're going to look first, then I make sure that that first place they look is reinforcing the fact that this is an important visual message that people need to look at. And then if I know where they're going to look second, then that's great. I can start to build an image knowing exactly where you're going to look and when inside the image. Now you say, no, can't be done. Try this for yourself. The six priorities that determine where the eye looks first in an image is we look first at that which is moving. And the reason is, we have been around as a, as a species for hundreds of thousands of years, at least more than a week. And when something is moving, up until recently, when something is moving, we were either going to eat it or it was going to eat us. It was a binary choice. Are we going to live or is it going to live? And so movement is the very first thing our brains, at the very simplest level, our brains are programmed to say, something's moving. Am I in trouble or do I have lunch? So if I'm creating video, if I want somebody to look somewhere, the very place I want them to look will be the thing that's moving inside the frame because they cannot help but look at that which is moving. And if you have multiple things moving at the same time, then other priorities take effect. But the very first thing we look at is movement or the implication of movement as in cartoons. Second place that we look is what's in focus. This is one of the reasons people like using lenses as opposed to cell phones. A cell phone does a really great job of taking a picture, but everything from front to back is in focus. The eye doesn't know where to look at first. So first we check something, is it moving? If it's still image and there's nothing moving, then the next priority we check off on our list is what's in focus. I will always look at that which is in focus before I look at anything else. Third thing we look at is what's different if everything is in focus, what's different? Who's in red? Or there's five guys and a girl. We look at the girl first because she's different than everything else. First, we look at movement. Then we look at what's in focus. And then we look at what's different. Who's bigger or who's smaller? What's different? Fourth thing we look at is what's brighter. We'll look at something which is brighter before we look at something that's darker. But if something's brighter but not different, we'll look at that which is different before we look at that which is brighter. Well, now, suddenly, I can structure an image by setting the focus to a particular thing, piece of text or a person. I can have them be different, which makes them pop. 
I can have them be brighter, uh, change them and put them in costumes. Every dance troupe in the world puts the lead dancers in lighter colored costumes and the background dancers in darker color costumes. So there's no question that your eye is always going to go to the more brightly costumed dancer. Then we look at that which is bigger. That which is bigger will catch the eye more than that which is smaller. And finally, we look at that which is in front. So by structuring where my actors are standing, how they're moving, what they're wearing, how they're lit, I can guarantee that the eye will look at point A, point B, point C, and will walk its way through the image based upon those priorities, simply by the way that I set the shot or light the shot or have the actors move gives me an immense amount of control in terms of delivering a message because I can control exactly where the viewer's eye is going to go, and the viewer's eye doesn't even realize it's being controlled. This is powerful, powerful stuff. It isn't magic. It isn't mumbo-jumbo. It's just based on the way that our brain is programmed to interpret images based upon our historical makeup and genetics and all the images we've seen that have gone before. Everybody that works commercially with images, any professional designer, knows this, they may not have articulated it, but knows it. They're using these techniques to create images for you. Wouldn't it be useful for you to know what those techniques are? Both to create images for yourself, but also to defend yourself against the images that are bombarding you every day. Absolutely. Is that not cool stuff? It's very cool stuff, Larry. And you know what? I'm the kind of person that watches things and I'm talking to the screen all the time. My family, when we weren't quarantined separately, my family would always say, Serena, just watch. Can't you just watch? But I'm always, I do what you do. I dissect things. You were sitting the other evening watching a movie. Yeah, I watch movies the way you do, and I'm always sort of dissecting them. And a couple of nights ago, I was watching a film, and there was a key scene between the woman and the man. And it's a very emotional moment. And the director didn't notice that in the background, there was a background actor who was engaging right in the direction of the camera and moving. And it distracted me because that person was literally between the two key actors. And even though he was in the far background... He distracted me from the emotionality of that moment, and I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, when they, they got the dailies back, maybe they could get rid of that, but I doubt it because they would lose continuity. So I think everything you're talking about here is so important. Many of us do this instinctively and don't articulate it, and I really appreciate the fact that you're articulating it for all of us. It's very important right now. We need mentors, and you've always been a good mentor to a lot of people, so... I'm encouraging people to get this book. It's called Techniques of Visual Persuasion. Can you tell people where they can go to get it? Uh, Virtually wherever books are sold. Barnes & Noble, PeachPit.com, Amazon.com, wherever you can find a book. It's, It's available worldwide. Thank you. I'm very grateful for your kind words. Oh, my gosh. It's a wonderful book. Is there anything I didn't ask you before we say goodbye? I don't want to say goodbye. It's been so long since we've talked. I think the key thing to keep in mind, the reason I wrote this book is not to turn all of us into filmmakers and not to turn all of us into artists, but to help all of us improve our ability to communicate. Communication in the past was based on writing skills. Communication today is based on visual skills, and many of us are uncomfortable with our ability to tell stories or communicate with pictures, and we don't need to be. Communication with pictures can be and is, in fact, fun and powerful and effective. 
And this book explains what you need to know to improve the quality of your own communication to the people that you talk with on a regular basis. And where can we go to learn more about Larry Jordan? My website, Larry Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, LarryJordan.com. I focus on media, so you'll find lots of stuff on media. Go to the section called Free Resources, Free Resources. You'll find well over 2,000 technical articles that will just bore you to death on how all of your favorite software works. Larry Jordan, you are an award-winning producer, director, editor, teacher, trainer, and you've been involved in the media industry for many years, and I have known you and worked with you on projects for almost 20 of those years. It's so nice to talk to you again. I just want to thank you for coming on OWC Radio, and I want to thank all the folks at OWC Radio for sponsoring this show so that I can talk to wonderful people like Larry Jordan. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you, Larry. And this is Serena Catania. I am signing off. And remember what I tell you every time. Get up off your chair and go do something new and wonderful today. And it may be something like picking up this book and reading it, but go do something wonderful for yourself and for the world. This is Serena Catania signing off. (music) 